Um, and Leslie Citrome is with me. We're going to be talking today about tardive dyskinesia, looking at some practical strategies for patient monitoring, follow-up, and the use of the VMAT2 inhibitor treatment, which are now the recommendations for treatment of tardive dyskinesia. Um, let's start off, unless anybody has an objection. Cool, it actually got really quiet. It did. Okay, so uh, the, well, there. Got to know which way the slides are. Okay, so our uh, information is up here. Uh, our disclosures are here. All of this in, in micro font in your handouts. And uh, I want you to realize that we will be discussing off-label uses of some drugs and we'll also be discussing on-label uses of some drugs. So what are our objectives for today? We're going to evaluate the clinical trial data for the efficacy and tolerability of the VMAT2 inhibitors for tardive dyskinesia. We're going to outline the dosing schedules and some population-specific considerations for these different products. And we're going to engage in available uh, we're going to engage you in what the available support programs are because if you haven't noticed, these are a little bit expensive. But there are support programs. Basically, everybody can get these drugs. So, definitions and overview. I think you're going to handle definitions. Magic wand. Thank you. So this is our outline. We're going to cover not only the VMAT2 inhibitors, we're also going to cover what we mean by tardive dyskinesia and how often does it occur, what we can expect to see, what we need to differentiate it from other uh, movement disorders. And this brings us to the AIMS, and I have the privilege of conducting the AIMS. I have my specialized equipment right there. So uh, that's what you need to know. We'll leave them right there for now. No, just Okay, showing off your strength, okay. Or lack thereof. <laughs> and we're gonna go do the AIMS, and we're gonna do it in front of you. We're going to talk a bit about harm reduction, uh, spend most of our time around the interventions, but also something called follow-up, and then have time for a summary and, and questions and answers. So definitions and overview. What do I, we mean by tardive dyskinesia? Well, tardive means delay, dyskinesia means movement, so delayed onset of a movement, and we typically see this in patients who've been exposed to dopamine receptor blocking agents. And these are most, in our world, it's uh, antipsychotics, both first and second generation antipsychotics, but also antiemetics, and also this, this drug called metoclopramide or Reglan. And when you read the product label for this drug, it's a bolded boxed warning that you shouldn't be on it for more than 12 weeks because of the risk of tardive dyskinesia. So tardive, delayed uh, dyskinesia, abnormal movement. And in the DSM, it describes in detail, you can see movements in the tongue, jaw. When people walk, it looks like they're playing the piano, piano playing movements. You can see movements of the hip, and you can have actually hip thrusting as well, which can be quite embarrassing for that person. They don't, you know, other people not, have no idea why this person is, uh, has these movements and no one wants to sit next to them on the bus or talk to them and so on can be quite stigmatizing. You may hear grunting. That's the diaphragm being involved in tardive dyskinesia. Sometimes we'll see these movements when we decrease the dose of the antipsychotic, stop the antipsychotic or change the antipsychotic. And 
we can call that withdrawal dyskinesia unless it's still there eight weeks later. Then we'll call it tardive dyskinesia. So arrhythmic movements. Now these movements were first described in relation to antipsychotic drugs in 1957 by Schoenecker about five years after the use of neuroleptics in psychiatry. We now know that uh, second-generation antipsychotics are not immune from TD, although there appears to be a lower risk. If you look at the data in some ways, the rates are not zero. And we talked about other agents other than antipsychotics that can be associated with uh, tardive dyskinesia. Now, metoclopramide is a very popular drug. I was on it for about a week in February, and I'm really happy that it was available to me. So I was quite grateful, but also knowing I shouldn't be on it for 12 weeks or, or greater. Once established, tardive dyskinesia is irreversible in most cases, and it's particularly stigmatizing if it sets someone apart from everybody else. So if they look strange, that person who is looking strange may not know they're looking strange, but everyone else does. And it can really prevent someone's reintegration into the community. Now, the indications for antipsychotics have really expanded over the years. It's not just for schizophrenia anymore. We also use it for mood disorders, bipolar disorder, bipolar maintenance, bipolar mania, bipolar depression. Thankfully, Augmentation of depression. Yes, that's right. I keep on forgetting. That's probably the biggest use. Yeah. It might be half of all the antipsychotic yeah. use. Yeah. Uh, and these... Although people who receive antipsychotics adjunctively to SSRIs or SNRIs will get second-generation antipsychotics, usually at lower doses and for shorter periods of time than people with schizophrenia, they still can get tardive dyskinesia, and it happens. Fortunately, we have treatments for this that we didn't have prior to 2017, at least treatments approved by the FDA. Now, let's take a deeper dive into prevalence rates. And Lots of different studies were done. Some say one thing, another study says another thing. A meta-analysis took a look at 41 studies over close to uh, 11, 12,000 patients, average age about 43 years old. And the overall prevalence of tardive dyskinesia was one in four. With those who were on first-generation agents, about one in three. Those on second-generation agents, one out of five. However, this is confusing. Because what if you're on a second-generation antipsychotic and never were on a first-generation antipsychotic? Well, there, the prevalence... Those was, people are rare, but they do exist. They do. I've seen them with my own eyes. 7.2% prevalence of TD. And then you have to think, well, who are these people who've never been on an older agent? Well, they're younger, generally. They didn't go through an emergency room, is one way. Yeah. Because... Everybody that goes to an ER winds up, winds up getting a, a first-generation drug, usually haloperidol, before they go anywhere else. So they're usually younger. They usually uh, uh, have received lower doses of antipsychotics. This is different from my you know, a 50, 60-year-old patient who uh, first started out on first-generation antipsychotics, like haloperidol, at doses that were you know, kind of on a high side, 100 milligrams a day, not unusual. R routine. Yeah. Uh, nowadays, of course, it sounds very odd. Uh, the risk factors uh, uh, that have been identified were older age, longer illness duration, early occurrence of drug-induced Parkinsonism, African-American ethnicity, and perhaps presence of a mood disorder. I want to point out this 7.2% again, just so I don't forget. Adjunctive use 
or MDD. That is a universe of patients that we never really thought about even discussing tardive dyskinesia with. But imagine that, they're the ones who are most insightful about abnormal movements and probably we tread very carefully, with the, we should tread very carefully with these patients in terms of the duration of how long they're gonna be on the antipsychotic. The conversion of somebody from a partial responder on antidepressants to getting a full remission is quite impressive with some of these agents, but you've got to keep the dose low and you need to see if you can get rid of it. But those people will perceive that tardive dyskinesia development as grossly disfiguring. It will alter their function and their ability to perform in life because they will be very self-conscious. Let you go back on. So prevalence and clinical factors, we can take a look at the correlations for age and uh, psychiatric illness duration. They're not, you know, one-to-one. -one. However, they are statistically significant. So I wouldn't let that, he, uh, let your guard down with a younger person who hasn't been on an antipsychotic for all that long. We need to monitor everyone. Uh, we talked about withdrawal dyskinesia. If withdrawal dyskinesia persists, we'll call it TD. We don't want to waste any time there. The awareness is really interesting. If you look at patients with schizophrenia, they're not necessarily aware that they're moving their tongue or their hands in an unusual manner. A study was done in Singapore uh, some time ago looking at over 600 patients in a state mental hospital. About 40% of that group uh, met criteria for tardive dyskinesia. Not at all unusual back then. And of the group that had tardive dyskinesia, two-thirds were not aware that they had TD. Mm -hmm. uh, other people were aware, so caregivers and family were aware. So this is quite an interesting phenomenon. I've seen many patients with schizophrenia who tell me, what, what movement? I don't have a, a movement. Many of my patients would develop a habit of chewing gum, which conveniently covers the oral dyskinesias. Okay, so you've got to... You've got to be a little bit of a, a, an inspector and, and a, a detective and find out what's going on. So one of the things we'll get to on the Ames exam is you ask people to remove gum from their mouth. Now, as a caveat, and we've said this before, it's worth repeating, those who have TD who don't have schizophrenia can be exquisitely aware of their mm -hmm. abnormal movements. And having TD because of exposure to metoclopramide is a common reason for a lawsuit. So what about differential diagnosis? What's the difference and how can we figure this out? So there are a number of conditions that can look very much like tardive dyskinesia. And uh, there are a number of these. Uh, we have Kraepelin, the father of, of really uh, describing uh, Schizophrenia early on, dementia praecox, I believe was his. Um, and in, this was a convulsive movement he described. Keep in mind, this is many years before the first dopamine blocking agents were available. And it had the same appearance then that it does now. So this is not unique to antipsychotics. This is a condition that was present in people that in 1907 were diagnosed with schizophrenia. I do not know what DSM of 1907 actually meant when they said schizophrenia. Uh, actually, they didn't have the word then, but never mind. Okay, Oral movements from ill-fitting dentures. 
You all should know how to fix ill-fitting dentures. You send them to the dentist. Okay? And these people frequently have bad dentures because their continuous mouth movements wear their jaw down and the dentures don't fit any longer. Uh, tardive dyskinesia, you need to be very um, concerned about uh, volitional and psychotic uh, mannerisms, psychoticisms, tics, and drug-induced Parkinson's. Uh, to make life a little more complicated, all of these can be superimposed in the same person that really does have tardive dyskinesia. Drug-induced Parkinsonism worsens in general with increasing antipsychotic doses. Tardive dyskinesia in general, the symptoms are masked or abate or covered by increasing antipsychotic doses. You can make drug-induced Parkinsonism better if you cut the dose. But if you give somebody that has TD a dose reduction, their symptoms will generally flare. Okay, so this is a problem. Uh, anticholinergics, and I have heard this as recently as last year um, from one of our psychiatrists, that it treats tardive dyskinesia. No, they do not. I had to go dig up the article from like 1964 or something that showed that it actually worsens tardive dyskinesia. In, in fact, if you look at the product label for benzotropine cogentin, it says not a treatment for TD can make TD worse, right there in the label. Right. And I would prefer if cogentin came in bottles with a skull and crossbones. Then we would know that this is like poison for our patients. If you don't have TD, being exposed to cogentin will increase your risk of developing TD. If you have TD, it can make the TD worse. That's not the worst thing about cogentin or benzotropine. The worst thing in my mind is people's cognition is going to be impaired in the presence of an anticholinergic. Their memory is going to be impaired. And our patients already have cognitive impairment. Why make it worse? So I don't use cogentin as often as I used to now that I'm aware of all these things. And if I do need to use cogentin, if someone has an acute dystonic reaction like this, I need to manage it. But after I have managed the acute, uh, the acute episode with, let's say, an anticholinergic, I'm going to think about a more durable solution, like switching the antipsychotic to something else. Because I don't want to have a prolonged exposure to benztropine for months or years. Uh, we'll get back to benztropine in a minute. I've got a few other nasty things to say. Um, <laughs> Uh, let's see. Um, oh, and the nature and severity, the last point here, um, can vary over time. If you stress somebody or distract them, the movements will increase in magnitude. And that's a difference on how we rate the AIMS exam now from when we used to. We used to rate one down if we were doing an activating uh, procedure. Now we rate whatever we see at the worst. Yeah, you know why we do that is because People used to say, oh, you're activating by, you know, asking them to touch their thumb to their fingers or by walking or by a cognitive task like counting backwards. But, you know, people with TD uh, are doing stuff. They are walking, they are talking, they are eating, and that's activating maneuvers that they themselves do. And all an activating maneuver is is the involvement voluntarily of one muscle group and the TD will appear in another muscle group. So by using these activating maneuvers in our AIMS examination or whatever examination we use, we're recreating what a person would go through in normal life. 
Okay, so um, this table is very similar to a table that I had that predates this, but it's basically the same table because we have the same data. Um, so tardive dyskinesia is delayed. Drug-induced Parkinsonism is relatively immediate. Dystonias can occur in hours to days. Uh, Parkinsonism in days to weeks. Akathisia in hours to weeks. But tardive dyskinesia is after an exposure for at least a couple of months. Motor symptoms are arrhythmic movements, usually choreoathetoid, large movements and fine writhing movements. Uh, face, trunk, extremities, uh, uh, it can be in the diaphragm. You can get a dyskinesia in your diaphragm that causes people to have increased risk of aspiration while eating. These are, can be very problematic. The rhythmic tremor is sometimes described uh, from Parkinsonism as a pill rolling tremor because that was what the motion pharmacists had when they were actually making pills. Has anybody here ever made a pill? Really? Well, actually, I have, yes. With the dough, and you roll it out with a pill tile, you cut it up and roll into a little ball, let it dry? Okay, that marks you as being old. Wow, okay. I wasn't expecting that answer at all. Okay, um, so you can see these different characteristics and the treatment options are wildly different. The treatment option for tardive dyskinesia is a VMAT2 inhibitor. There are other things that people have touted. They don't work, and if they do a little, they don't work well, and they don't work for long. Okay? And I could, well, for example, you could always raise the antipsychotic dose and suppress the symptoms. And then next month, it'll, symptoms will come back, and now you have a bigger problem. Okay, so on the other side, we've got anticholinergics uh, and antihistamines that will, and, and for that matter, benzodiazepines that will treat a drug-induced severe Parkinson's symptom. Okay, so amantadine appears in both columns. Yes, as you'll notice it. it works uh, reasonably well for drug-induced Parkinsonism. You do worry about the worsening of psychosis in some vulnerable patients if you dose it too high too quickly, and it helps somewhat with tardive dyskinesia, although not to the same effect as a VMAT2 inhibitor. It's weak. It's weak. Uh, I, that is my go-to drug for pseudoparkinsonism currently. And I have not seen anybody who got better on more than 200 milligrams a day than they did on 200. So that's my top dose now. I used to push it higher. Doesn't give me any more traction. Okay, so this is where we get to hostility toward benztropine. It increases your risk for tardive. It also is coincident with the fact that these people have pseudoparkinsonism early on. So there's a confounding there. It can certainly, if not make it uh, worse, it will not help. It impairs cognition. Uh, if you do a digit span test, two milligrams BID of benztropine will knock off two digits on your digit span. Okay? Think of how well you'd function if I knocked down your memory by two sevenths. Um, causes constipation. Constipation is a chronic, severe, and deadly problem in our patients. The number one cause of death from clozapine is not a granulocytosis. It's constipation. We wrote an article on that uh, several years ago. Um, if it patient needs it for more than a few weeks, you got to come up with another game plan. Okay? 
People who are on benzotropine for the last 12 years need a new game plan and also probably ought to have their um, clinicians go back to do a little more CE. Now, uh, uh, you notice Mr. Yuck. Who remembers Mr. Yuck? Okay, who knew that Mr. Yuck had tardive dyskinesia? All right. Okay, I hadn't thought of that. Um, and amantadine we've already mentioned. Okay, AIMS exam. So the AIMS, Abnormal Involuntary Movement Scale. Who here does the AIMS? Good. Uh, that, uh, that's excellent. I think any, everybody in this room can do the AIMS. It requires some degree of orientation and practice, but it's something that can be done within five to 10 minutes. And it involves filling out this form, which in some uh, locales is mandatory. So where I worked for many years, the New York State Office of Mental Health, in the inpatient setting, we had to fill this out every six months. Now, sometimes it was filled out with just zeros down the line without paying any attention to this. But the right way to do it, and we're going to go over step by step, there's 12 items here. And with first-generation antipsychotics, guide, guidance being offered by, let's say, the American Psychiatric Association says evaluate for TD every six months. Now, it doesn't say use the AIMS, it just says evaluate, but the AIMS is a convenient way to do it. With second-generation antipsychotics and no other risk factors, it's, it's annual. Those at high risk, though, you need to do it more often. Now, what's cool is that not only is this a clinical scale used in clinical settings, it is also the primary outcome measure in the research of drugs for tardive dyskinesia. So if you know the aims clinically, you'll be able to understand the research being done to develop treatments for tardive dyskinesia. There are seven items that we rate where we look at the movements in seven different muscle groups. Four in the face, one for the upper extremities, one for the trunk, one for the lower extremities. Why four for the face? Well, there's a lot of intricate musculature in the face. It's how we communicate. It's also easily noticed. And it was convenient to use in this scale. It's kind of arbitrary. You're going to measure each item from one, uh, from zero to four, actually. Zero, no movements. One, minimal or extreme normal. You're not, You're not sure. sure it's abnormal at a one. It's, yeah. it's a little questionable, not sure. But when you get to two. Two is definitely there. You know, it's mild, but everyone agrees it's, you know, it's Not there. normal. Not normal. Abnormal. Completely. Three. If any of you ever saw uh, uh, Young Frankenstein, you'll remember Abbey Normal. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. One mm -hmm. of my favorite movies. So three, moderate and usually quite obvious. Four, you can see it from across the parking lot. Now, if you sum up items one through seven, you get a total dyskinesia score, which is what was used in, as the research outcome for the VMAT2 inhibitors that we'll talk about. How do you get seven... Uh, you know, how do you get a total of seven out of these seven items? Well, you can score a one down the line. What does that mean? It means you're minimal or extreme normal down the line. You're not really exceptional. But you can get a seven by rating a four for, let's say, the tongue, three for the jaw, and it's painfully obvious that you have TD. So this is a problem. You can't just sum it up in isolation. You have to also look at the individual items and what the highest item was, which brings us to global severity. This is the answer to uh, our problem with the aims in terms of, so what does this really mean? Well, this is what it really means. You take the highest item rated for the first seven, 
and that's your item eight, severity, global severity. It's not your judgment, it's, you know, overall, it's what you rated as the highest item. And that will communicate quite effectively the severity of the TD in general to the next person taking care of the patient. Now, the degree of incapacitation is also assessed by you, as well as the patient's awareness and distress related to these movements. It's not unusual for this to be rated close to zero for someone with schizophrenia. And the last two items relate to documenting the dental status, because that's an important confound for the assessment of tardive dyskinesia. So we're now gonna do the aims in front of you, and we're gonna use our specialized equipment here that is often present in most treatment settings. Now, I would prefer to use a stool that suspended the person's feet off the ground because that gives them more opportunity to be able to see it. I, I said get rid of those stools. Yeah, I know. Okay. And these are padded chairs, very similar to the one you're sitting in, but you're sitting in it. So these are up here. It should be an unpadded chair because the padding will absorb some of the movements. I told him to get rid of those. Yeah, I know. No arms on the chair, and it's best if you have a stool where there's no legs that the person can wrap their feet around to stop the movements. What about wheels? Wheels are just scary and dangerous. So we have our, our equipment. I've already observed uh, the, uh, our test case today. I observed, him, yes, I observed him uh, out in uh, the hallways. I've watched him walk. And this is what we should do with our patients, observe them unobtrusively, although uh, Stephen noticed right away I was staring at him. But if you can do it unobtrusively, you can see if there's any abnormalities there. And so in the waiting room, and I have them go to the examination room. They usually know where it is, and I follow them, and I can observe more. So I'll have two identical chairs. Why do I need two? Because one is not enough, because I can't tell the patient to do stuff without doing it in front of them. Observe, please sit. Uh, ordinarily, I would ask the person to remove their shoes and socks, but I know better. You can that, keep. That is one of the mistakes that I see people make is that they'll routinely do the exam without asking people to remove their shoes and socks. But for purposes of embarrassment and time, we're going to skip that little detail. Yes. So, but don't do it. Most of my patients, when they come for the movement examination, know I'm going to want to look at their feet. So they're kind to me. So I don't spring it on them. Uh, and if I do have to do that, I need to you know, live with it. And, but I need to see those toes. And I'll ask, do you have anything in your mouth? No. Uh, any dentures? No. Do your teeth bother you? No. Have you noticed any movements in your hands, arms, legs, trunk, face? No. Okay, so what I'd like to do is examine you for various movements that I've just described in your hands, arms, legs, feet, and so on. Okay. And uh, I'm going to ask you now to, to sit, sit like this. Now, if I wasn't sitting in a chair, how can I say sit like this? Think about it. And uh, please put your arms like this. Now, how can I do that if I'm not, they can do that if I'm not doing it in front of them. They don't know what I'm talking about. Open your mouth. Take out your tongue. Open your mouth with, you put your tongue back in, open your mouth. Okay. What I'd like to do is have you touch your thumb to your fingers as quickly as you can like this. Open your mouth. 
stick out your tongue. Okay, that's fine. And I would do this twice. And this touching the finger to the, the, the thumb is an activating maneuver. By moving voluntarily these muscles, perhaps I'll see something in other muscles like in the face or the trunk or the legs or the feet. And I'll do this twice for the sake of completeness and making sure I gave E sufficient time to do this. Now imagine telling a patient to touch their fingers to their thumb as quickly as possible. They won't do it unless you show them what you want. It's really complex when you ask someone to do a sequence of, of motor movements without demonstrating it for them, they will not be able to do it. Even people without a mental disorder have difficulty following these kinds of instructions. I will also ramp up the difficulty level if they're too fluent at being able to do that. So I'll have them do one hand and I'll say, can you do your other hand? And I'll say, can you do both hands at the same time? Can you do one going one way and the other one going the other way? And at some point, really close to that, they can't do it. And if you go much farther, they'll hit you. But um, no, it, you need to get them to the point where they're really focusing on that movement. It pulls their attention and their muscle uh, control away from the rest of their body. And those abnormal movements are not under the same control system. They're basal ganglia controlled and the movements are expressed. So remain sitting. I'd, I'd like to uh, touch your arms, and I'm going to check if there's any stiffness. Whoa, okay. All right, you can relax now. Uh, check the wrist, check the elbow, check the shoulder. And you know what? You don't rate this anywhere on the AIMS form, but the AIMS instructions tell you to do it. Why? Because if you see stiffness and rigidity, you're going to think of drug-induced Parkinsonism rather than tardive dyskinesia very helpful in the differential diagnosis. Please stand. So I'd like you to uh, put out your arms like this for me. And I'm checking if there's any uh, dyskinesias or even any fine tremor. If I see fine tremor, it's going to make me think of a drug-induced Parkinsonism. Now, I need to do an activating maneuver here. And one of the activating maneuvers is cognitive. If uh, uh, if the patient is up to it, I'll ask them to count uh, to actually recite the months backwards, but I usually ask them to count backwards. And uh, here, I'd like you to count backwards by sevens. Where do you want me to start? At 100. 100. 100, 93, 86, uh, 79. Now you're moving your, your hands. <laughs> but this is not a choreathetotic movement. This is a movement to, to sort of express uh, yes. one's verbal uh, productions. So, but if you do see the piano playing type of movements, that's going to make you think. But they're usually not bilaterally symmetric like I was doing. I was conducting an orchestra, not <laughs> playing with one hand or the other. So uh, lastly, I'd like you to walk for me from one end of the stage to the other. So here is where uh, space can be limited in your office. And don't walk off the edge. Yeah, don't walk off the edge. No, that's, that would be bad. Uh, in an office, uh, now I've been in some offices where it's really small, and this is not going to be long, you know, this is ample, but sometimes you have half this distance. So that's why I like observing the, the gate when uh, they're in the hallway coming to your office. Okay, you can stop pacing now. Okay. It's making me nervous. So what I'm doing there is assessing a couple things. One, the production of dyskinetic movements in the hands and the trunk and face, anywhere where I can see that, 
as well as assessing for shuffling gait. So if I see the shuffling gait, I'm gonna think of drug-induced Parkinsonism. I don't document shuffling gait anywhere on the AIMS, but it's part of the entire examination. And the way you score things, just to emphasize what was mentioned before, you're gonna score the largest, most dramatic movements that you see. You don't take averages of what you see. You, you rate the worst that you see. And you rate the activated movements the same way as when they're not activated. And we don't make any further adjustments because you have to assume that in the real world, they're gonna do all those other things that you've asked them to do, and this is how they're gonna present themselves to the world. Also, you don't interpret the scale in terms of what you know about the patient. You rate what you see, and then you explain what, the, what you think you know about them. So rate the movement, don't interpret the movement and give you the interpreted rating that you know they have some problem, and then you rate it down. You rate what you see, and then you explain why it's different. They have bad dentures, okay, something like that. So let's go over, let's move these uh, chairs back out of the way. We'll save them for the lions later. Yes. Now, the criteria for TD includes some assessment of the dyskinesias. The AIMS itself is not a diagnostic test per se. You need to make some conclusion based on data from the AIMS and the prior history of the patient. So they had to have been exposed to a dopamine receptor blocking agents. They've had to have been exposed for a certain amount of time. And they have to have movements that achieve a certain amount of severity for a specific, at least a specific amount of time, and you have to exclude other neurological disorders. There have been a variety of different definitions that have been uh, offered. schooler Kane, you, that's probably the most common set of criteria used, the SK criteria. Glazer uh, has uh, also established criteria, and the DSMs have uh, half-heartedly established some criteria, not nearly as comprehensive as what we would find elsewhere. And also not useful to figure out what the answer is. It's, it's always a judgment call at the end on the DSM criteria. So what can we do for harm reduction? Well, the first thing is you don't give everybody an antipsychotic for no good reason, okay? So you need to have a good reason to begin these medications just from the get-go. So what's your indication? What are you going to treat? What do you expect to have happen? Do not put people on the maximum tolerated dose. Put them on the minimum functionally effective dose and keep them on that, and that might require some adjustment over time. Usually not much, but things change. Uh, Consider starting and staying with a second-generation drug that has a much lower incidence of tardodyskinesia. And by the way, the original name of these were atypical antipsychotics because the atypicality of them was that they didn't cause pseudoparkinsonism at effective doses. All the earlier drugs did. So yes, they do have less association with drug-induced Parkinsonism. The rates are not zero, and there's variability amongst the second-generation antipsychotics there. There are three that have placebo-level drug-induced Parkinsonism when compared in groups, but even those can be associated with drug-induced Parkinsonism in the individual person. However, TD risk, though, is frighteningly similar between the two. And there's been studies of incident rates of new cases of TD, and the rates for second-generation antipsychotics about 4% per year, 
And for first-generation antipsychotics, 5.5% a year. It's not all that different. So I would be cautious there about feeling, whoo, I don't see any drug-induced Parkinsonism. I will never have to worry about TDE. Not necessarily true. But it's like compound interest. Over time, that, that yeah. risk difference expands. Um, so make sure that you provide informed uh, consent to the patients and the patient's caregivers about monitoring for this abnormal movements. If you ever notice any abnormal movements, please contact me so that we can evaluate it more carefully. And assess the patients routinely using a standardized scale, the most common of which by far is the AIMS. Anybody use a scale other than the AIMS? Wow, zero. That's, That's never good. gotten a zero. That's good because they would have had to leave immediately. Well, maybe. Uh, just to give you an interesting tidbit, I was hired by the state of Texas because of a lawsuit over tardive dyskinesia in 1977. I wasn't hired then, but that's when the suit was filed. State of Texas lost one lawsuit per week on the average over tardive dyskinesia at that time. All of those have been filed in state courts. The judgments were sealed. You couldn't find a word about it. You couldn't find out how much money we paid out. Jenkins filed a federal lawsuit, and the federal lawsuit resulted in the federal court in Dallas seizing the state mental health system from the state of Texas, imposed a master with check-writing authority for the budget directly out of the state of Texas. The treasury of the state of Texas was in his checkbook, and the state could spend whatever he didn't. And uh, that lasted until 2003 when the lawsuit was ended because we were completely compliant, and the state of Texas cut the budget a third that year. There's a lesson there somewhere. Uh, risk factors, age, cumulative exposure. If you really want a nice tedious exercise, add up and correct for the potency of the agent all of the amount of antipsychotics they got day by day over their entire life. That is a really good predictor of tardive dyskinesia, okay? Uh, so age goes along with cumulative exposure as well because the longer you're around, the more dose you could get. Uh, being female, of course, females got higher milligram per kilogram doses of antipsychotics. Ethnicity, uh, people who are scared because of implicit bias issues like we just heard about, those people get higher doses on the average, okay? Uh, Pre-existing mood, uh, movement disorders, cognitive disorders, substance use disorders, in particular alcohol is the one that's been most identified, diabetes, HIV, other kinds of neurodegenerative diseases. Um, acute EPS is a risk factor, we've already mentioned that. And you can mask the EPS, you can treat it, doesn't go away of course, but nothing's cured, but it doesn't change the fact that that's going on under the surface, it increases your risk. Bottom line, some of these risk factors you can't do anything about. So getting older, you can't do anything about. You can do something about exposure to anticholinergic medicines. So I don't know if I said this, but I think cogentin's poison. I know there are people out there who disagree. Go check out what's going on with the literature. Um, so older individuals are more likely. They have increased risk. You already mentioned that and prolonged use of any dopamine receptor blocking agent increases the risk. 
Okay, treatment. Well, we could taper people off and discontinue the antipsychotics until a couple of years ago, that was dogma. That was all we really had that was really useful. And that basically meant that you'd made a mistake in using the drug that long. If you could stop the drug, you didn't need it. Okay? This isn't a sort of like, oh, it's a good idea, let's throw them on antipsychotic for no good reason. So you see initial worsening in between a third and a half of the patients. You see long-term improvement in somewhere between a little over a third to a little over a half. Uh, evidence that's really well done is not much. Uh, and that's being kind. Uh, the rate and timing of complete remission is, as far as I know, undocumented. Uh, Non-psychotic patients, there's no good justification. If you had a severe movement disorder, maybe, but you have other alternatives you should have tried and ruled out being effective first. And for psychotic patients, basically 50% of them relapse in six months. So you haven't gotten much of a choice. So you're somewhere caught between a rock and a hard place in a patient who's psychotic and needs their antipsychotic medication. Interventions are up next. So now we're ready to talk about interventions. We couldn't do this without talking about TD, what it is, what it isn't, how common is it, and the bit about uh, uh, the aims. Because in order to understand the interventions, you've got to know about all that stuff. I just want to point out, most clinicians don't think their patients have TD. Go do AIMS exams, and they do, really commonly. So you, you may have seen this before, evidence-based options, uh, options that are not recommended, and options that there's insufficient data to support or refute their use. And this was basically what we went by before the VMAT2 inhibitors became available. Clonazepam, ginkgo biloba, amantadine, tetrabenazine were all the evidence-based options that were endorsed by the American Academy of Neurology. Now, clonazepam works short-term only, did not work long-term. Ginkgo biloba works in China. That's where all the studies were done. Amantadine, weak effect size, but not unreasonable. Tetrabenazine seems to work, but poorly tolerated. So nothing really great here. And not recommended is stuff that can make TD worse or quite uh, uh, leads to complications. Insufficient data to support use is all the other stuff that was used in desperation. So what about tetrabenazine? It's a VMAT2 inhibitor. VMAT2 inhibitors are approved for the treatment of TD, but not, a man to, uh, not tetrabenazine. It was the first reversible and specific VMAT2 inhibitor, and the first systematic TD study with tetrabenazine was published in 1972, a long time ago, but never approved in this country for that purpose. It was developed as an alternative to reserpine. Who here has heard of reserpine? I know how old you are. How, anybody know the trade name? Oh, that's a good oh, one. Oh, damn. <laughs> Serpacel, yes. Yeah. Okay, so, no one will ever know that, need to know that again. But. Who's used it to treat schizophrenia? So uh, not everybody got it, but there was one unit where I worked where it was used because no, nothing else worked. Anyhow, tetrabenazine was approved in the U.S. in 2008 as an orphan drug for Huntington's disease, uh, Korea. And it's been used off-label for moderate to severe forms of TD in this country, but it has side effects, has a short half-life, lots of drug-drug interactions. 
When we look at where it's been approved for TDE, though, it, it has been approved in other countries, just not here. Now, before it was approved for Huntington's uh, Korea, uh, we used to be able to access it through protocols for nothing. I mean, it was very, very inexpensive. The moment it got approved for Huntington's Korea, all of a sudden it was very difficult for us to access here in this country to treat TDE. So we, we really basically stopped using it as much as we used to. What is a VMAT2 inhibitor? Well, the way dopamine gets released from dopaminergic neurons is that it's packaged in these synapses. And when the neuron fires, it releases the contents of these uh, synaptic vehicles, I should say. Uh, these, these vesicles get emptied out into the synaptic cleft. Now, what if these vesicles were devoid of any dopamine? Well, then there's nothing to release. So one way of decreasing the amount of dopamine release from a dopaminergic neuron is to prevent them from being packaged into vesicles. How do we do that? Well, we inhibit the protein that transports monoamines like dopamine from the cytoplasm into the vesicle. And that's called a VMAT2 inhibitor. This requires quite a bit of energy. In fact, how much energy? Well, it, this is a very complex system. And that VMAT2 protein is one of a series of, of very high energy transporters that your body makes for specialized purposes. But this packages all of the monoamines into their uh, synaptic vesicles for release. And to package one molecule of dopamine in, it transports out of the vesicle two protons. So this is a very high energy exchange. And the uh, gradient it's pushing it up against is that it increases the concentration from the cytosol into the vesicle by a factor of 10,000 to one. So this is a very high compression ratio. Inhibiting this uh, with a uh, reversible selective inhibitor, and this is incredibly selective, really decreases the amount of dopamine per action potential on the presynaptic side. And Back to all, you. And all this magic occurs in the dorsal striatum, the neurologist striatum doesn't happen a whole lot in the ventral striatum or the emotional striatum. Why? I'm, I'm not quite sure, uh, but it's fortunate because you don't want to uh, really alter too much monomonergic transmission elsewhere in the brain. This seems to be pretty specific. And if you read the product label for tetrabenazine and son of tetrabenazine, you will see that uh, in radio uh, imaging studies that these VMAT2 inhibitors seem to go to the dorsal striatum. So that's cool. Reserpine, tetrabenazine, duotetrabenazine, valbenazine are VMAT inhibitors. Reserpine is irreversible. It's nonspecific, binds to VMAT1 and VMAT2. Uh, we can't uh, get it anymore. It's no longer being manufactured. Tetrabenazine- It's imported from India. Okay, well, you have to do that uh, on your own. Uh, no pharmacy. My name does not go anywhere near that. Yeah. Uh, tetrabenazine, duotetrabenazine, valbenazine are reversible VMAT2 inhibitors. They are quite selective. Uh, tetrabenazine has a short half-life. Duotetrabenazine, deuterated tetrabenazine is another way of describing it. Has a longer half-life. We call it intermediate. And valbenazine uh, has a longer half-life. The duotetrabenazine and valbenazine are well-tolerated and approved for tardive dyskinesia. Duotetrabenazine is also approved for Huntington's disease, Korea. Now, I'm not going to talk much about 
the studies that support tetrabenazine. I understand Dr. Stoner covered some of this on Sunday, but be as it may, these are small studies, and, and not state-of-the-art studies, but sufficient in number and uh, telling us the direction of effect that, okay, this stuff works to treat tardive dyskinesia. Would not pass muster for FDA approval for TD today, but did pass muster for other regulatory agencies in other countries 20, 30 years ago to approve it for that purpose. Its use is limited by significant side effects. Uh, there's a box bolded warning for tetrabenazine for depression and suicide risk. I think this is more related to the underlying disease to which it's being used for, Huntington's chorea, because patients with tardive dyskinesia do not necessarily show the same degree of side effects, including mood alterations, as was observed in Huntington's chorea. However, the short half-life is quite limiting, and you need to dose it two or three times a day and if you want to dose it above a certain amount, you need to do 2D6 genotyping when you exceed 50 milligrams a day. This is one of the very few drugs that the labeling tells you to do genetic testing. So we need to have alternatives that are simpler to use, that are perhaps better tolerated. And there's two ways of going about this. One is packaging active metabolites that we saw with tetrabenazine into a way that you can give it and a pro-drug approach is valbenazine. Valbenazine gets metabolized to plus alpha dihydrotetrabenazine, which is active and selective and uh, as a VMAT2 inhibitor. Or you can alter the tetrabenazine molecule by substituting deuterium atoms for the hydrogen atoms. This uh, alters the uh, amount of chemical energy required to break bonds at the carbon-deuterium um, um, linkage and will make this drug have a longer uh, half-life and uh, require lower doses in order to have the same degree of exposure. So that's the other approach. So tetrabenazine, valbenazine, duotetrabenazine are all kind of related. Tetrabenazine and valbenazine share a common metabolite, highly selective and potent at VMAT2, and duotetrabenazine is identical to tetrabenazine except for the substitution of deuterium for hydrogen at key locations, so the pharmacokinetics are altered in a highly advantageous way. Now, how do we know these work? Well, randomized double-blind clinical trials were done, and if we look at the numbers of patients who were tested in these trials, it far exceeds the number of patients tested in any trial for TD of all those other drugs I talked about. Roughly an order of magnitude more people in each of these trials. So many more than what were in the tetrabenazine trials and many more that were in all those off-label uh, treatments that we talked about earlier. Now the acute studies ranged in duration for six weeks for valbenazine, 12 weeks for duotetrabenazine. Uh, basically the results are what you would expect. Reduction of dyskinesias as measured by the AIMS total dyskinesia score that happens over time. This is due to tetrabenazine in the fixed dose study. We see reductions with 24 milligrams a day and 36 milligrams a day. Separation from placebo occurring fairly early on, quite robust. 12 milligrams a day, not quite where we want it to be in terms of effect size. So generally 24 milligrams a day and above is what is suggested. And you reach that by day 15 in the titration scheme for duotetrabenazine. So I'm quite happy with this, and there's an additional st uh, study looking at flexible dose that uh, is quite supportive as well. One thing I just want to mention, 
is that when we do studies, we get rates of things at certain doses in groups of people. It's a rate. Individuals are very different than a group. There might be people that need the lower dose. Okay, So you need to be aware of the fact that when you have a dose from a study, that tells you, if I treat 100 people, I'll know where I'm going to be on the average. But on any one person, you could be high or low. Exactly. So if I start someone on duotetrabenazine, 6 milligrams BID, the starting dose, I may see an effect. And, you know, I'll count myself lucky that I did see that effect. I may want to tweak it a little higher to see if I have an even a more robust effect. But let's say, miracle of miracles, 100% decrease in TD. Well, I'm not going to increase the dose. I see 100% decrease in the symptoms. Or, or you get mostly improved, give them a higher dose, and then you start getting some significant adverse effects. Right. They're having right trouble now. staying awake. Maybe the compromise is to go down to 6-BID. Absolutely. And if they're on a 2D6 inhibitor, their plasma levels will be a little higher anyway. So I wouldn't be at all surprised. In terms of adverse events, there are very few here uh, that would be alarming. In fact, I don't see any that are particularly alarming. We look at all of the adverse events that occurred in at least 2% of patients treated with duotetrabenazine. You'll see some that are more commonly encountered when those patients randomized to placebo. Now, I'm not surprised. This is called the nocebo effect, where rather than the placebo effect of expecting, anticipating a benefit, you have the anticipation of experiencing a harm, in this case, headache, perhaps. Somnolence uh, also was higher for placebo than for duotetrabenazine in the, the uh, studies for tardive dyskinesia. However, nasopharyngitis, 4% versus 2%, and there's another one here, insomnia, 4% versus 1%, is a difference. Now, these differences are small, and they're single digits, and they translate to number needed to harm values that are very large. And to uh, actually calculate number needed to harm for a more relevant outcome, uh, it will be illustrative. So sometimes we need to reduce a dose. Now, it's not the end of the world, but we need to reduce the dose. How often do we expect to have to do that? Well, in the clinical trials, 4% of patients required a dose reduction of their duotetrabenazine because of an adverse event compared to 2% of those taking placebo. Four versus two, hey, that's twice as much. That's twice as bad. But that's incredibly misleading for me to say it that way. Well, that would be relative risk and not well, absolute yeah, risk relative. reduction. And relative can just be, you know, a lot of BS because it, these are small numbers. How many here know what number needed to harm is? All hands should be raised. Who here can calculate it? Come on up. Or, okay, you can, you can, okay, I'm sorry about that. I don't, didn't mean to say that. Yes, I did. But anyhow. For this, uh, you can do it in your head, actually. Yeah. But so. We need to answer the question, how many patients needed to be randomized to do a tetrabenazine instead of placebo before expecting to have to decrease their dose because of an adverse event? Well, what's 4% minus 2%? 2%, right? That goes into 100 how many times? 50 times. It took 50 patients to be randomized to do a tetrabenazine versus placebo before expecting to have to reduce a dose. Now, what's the number needed to harm for discontinuation because of an adverse event. Well, that was way over 100 because the, the rates were very similar for drug and placebo, no matter how you look at it. What about getting a benefit? What about a 50% decrease in dyskinesias? That's less than 10. 
number needed to treat less than 10, which signifies a drug that's potentially useful. You're going to encounter the benefit much more often than have to reduce the dose or stop the drug, and you'll know your answer in 6 to 12 weeks if you're on the right track. So, very tolerable intervention. Valbenazine uh, is very similar in terms of the outcomes that we talked about for duotetrabenazine. Studies were shorter, six weeks, but in this fixed-dose study, 80 milligrams as well as 40 separated from placebo, bigger effect size for 80, so the recommendation for this drug is you go to 80. You get 40 for a week and you go to 80. There's no titration. With duotetrabenazine, you can titrate up, you can titrate back down, you find what's best for your individual patient. The studies for valbenazine uh, push us in the direction of a fixed-dose recommendation of 80. However, some people get somnolence on valbenazine. So if they're somnolent on 80, you can go back down to 40. If somebody is dramatically improved on 40, which is odd, but I've seen that, um, you don't have to push up for a while. You can see how well they do on 40. But the studies all have recommendations to push the dose. It's not in the protocol, but it is in the investigators' meeting. We'd like you to increase the dose as tolerated. So the studies all push the dose up. Your patients may or may not need that. Yeah, they may not read the product label <laughs> and behave you know, completely different than what you would expect. So we always have to keep an open mind. No, seriously, clinical trials show differences between groups, and we treat individual people. In terms of also, the molecule never read the product label either, so it doesn't know what it's supposed to do. Right. Good, good point. Thanks for, for saying that. <laughs> uh, adverse reactions in the valbenazine clinical trial database uh, for adverse reactions reported at 2% uh, or greater and uh, greater than then seen with placebo, we have somnolence. So here, 11% uh, approximately with valbenazine, 4% for placebo. 11 minus 4 is 7? Mostly. Yep, seven goes into 100, about 15 times around. So it, it's still a relatively large number needed to harm value, but low enough that you will encounter it from time to time. The remainder of the adverse events are too close uh, to call in terms of rate with valbenazine, rate with placebo. And again, the number needed to harm for discontinuation because of an adverse event is, is around 100 or above, and so it's not an outcome that we generally see. The number needed to treat for efficacy, less than 10. Uh, so, you know, you're going to see the benefit more often than a problem, and you'll know within six weeks. So here are the number needed to treat values for duotetrabenazine versus valbenazine in fixed-dose trials. There is no head-to-head -head study done for valbenazine versus duotetrabenazine. The best we can offer you is an indirect comparison. I chose the fixed-dose studies because it was easy to do and comparable between the agents, you know, similar kind of design, but keep in mind the duotetrabenazine studies were twice as long, be as it may. Number needed to treat a five, number needed to treat a four or five, uh, not bad. You see those error bars overlapping so much? There's no daylight between them. No. So I would say they're the same in terms of efficacy based on information like this, and the number needed to harm versus placebo before discontinuation, 100 or a little bit above that. So the likelihood to be helped or harmed for response versus discontinuation because of an adverse event is 20. You're 20 times more likely to see the 
benefit, that is a 50% or greater reduction in the dyskinesia, then have to stop the drug because of an adverse event. I believe that LHH was your invention, wasn't no, it? No, uh, alas, it is not. Oh, it is not, no. okay. But I have used it extensively because it really illustrates the risk-benefit game that we need to think about when prescribing and when evaluating people. And a 20 as an LHH is really spectacular. Combine that with the fact that you'll know in six to 12 weeks whether this intervention is useful or not, I don't see any reason why you shouldn't even, why it shouldn't be thought of more routinely. This is a slam dunk, it works, basically. Not every person around, but you got a 20 to one chance that this is gonna be a good idea. If, if you think that's not good, never go to Las Vegas. If you think that's really good, you're gonna win. So they're similar, but there's some differences. This is an eye chart, I apologize. I'll point out the dosing recommendations as we already discussed are different. Duotetrabenazine is a flexible dose approach to the problem. Valbenazine is a fixed dose approach to the problem. In terms of drug-drug interactions, duotetrabenazine, you are concerned about 2D6 inhibition. With valbenazine, both 2D6 and 3A4. Hepatic impairment is a contraindication for duotetrabenazine, but it is still a possibility to give valbenazine, although at a lower dose. Renal impairment, there are no studies done with uh, renal impairment and duotetrabenazine. However, uh, valbenazine, uh, we do have some guidance about its possible use under those circumstances. QT prolongation, both can prolong the QT interval. Both advise uh, some monitoring of this under specific conditions where there are additional risk factors. If there are no additional risk factors, this is not something that you would be concerned about. But what kind of additional risk factors am I speaking of? Well, let's say you're on citalopram. That's an additional risk factor. Let's say you're on ziprazidone. That's an additional risk factor. And if you're prescribing, uh, monitoring patients on duotetrabenazine who are receiving greater than 24 milligrams a day, you need to look at the EKG under those circumstances. And when you go to 40 to 80 with valbenazine, that's when you look as well under those specific circumstances. And getting the ECG is definitive on telling you if you have a QT prolongation or not. It actually is the answer to whether you have a problem. If you get a high dose and somebody says there's a warning, you can't do this, and you get the ECG and it's less than 400 uh, on the QT interval, QT corrected interval, uh, you haven't got a problem. No, no, and it would be better than mine. Uh, adverse events, uh, we talked about- That was a TMI. <laughs> I like to share. So nasopharyngitis and insomnia, were at least 4% and greater than what was seen with placebo, although it was not greater than 4%, it was just equal to 4%. So that threshold of 4% was used, and the FDA, you might have noticed, if nothing shows up at 5% or greater, they'll just lower the threshold so that you talk about some adverse event, you just can't leave it alone, and so 4% turns out to be your new threshold for reporting uh, in labeling. For valbenazine, it was uh, somnolence, and we talked about 11% versus 4% already. So both drugs are effective, well-tolerated, and they can reduce the dyskinesias and all the associated crap that goes along with it in terms of someone's functionality and ability to reintegrate with uh, society and the community. Patients can remain on their antipsychotic therapy without alteration. And this is a big plus when we finally stabilize someone and don't want to really mess 
with their uh, regimen. The treatment goal is to reduce the severity and impact of TD, not necessarily eliminate it completely, but get it down sufficiently so that their lives are improved. If we try to push it too high to get rid of all the dyskinesias, we might run into some problems. So we need to compromise sometimes, but basically if someone is unable to dress themselves or eat, and then they can dress themselves and eat, I consider that a huge advance in their treatment. There are no head-to-head -head studies, as I mentioned, comparing our two choices. We'll need to look at what they can offer for our individual patients. We'll consider adherence once a day versus twice a day. So didn't mention this uh, explicitly, but duotetrabenazine is labeled BID. Valbenazine is labeled once a day. Now, duotetrabenazine allows for dose adjustments. Valbenazine, not as much. And the side effect profile does differ somewhat in that the somnolence adverse event profile is uh, more of an issue with valbenazine as reported than with duotetrabenazine. But tolerability and efficacy, your mileage will vary between individual patients. Has anybody switched anybody from one agent to the other? Okay, I don't know of any case, so. So I, I've encountered that, uh, switching one for the other uh, for tolerability issues and efficacy issues in the hopes of seeing something different. And sometimes you see, and sometimes you don't. Really? Okay. Yeah. There's no need to discontinue or reduce antipsychotic therapy. I think that's the biggest advantage. If they're already on mood stabilizers or antidepressants, that's okay too. And they're effective on TD irrespective of whether or not they have schizophrenia or a mood disorder. And neither of the choices worsen depression, mania, psychosis, or induced suicidality as tested in the TD trials. So TD patients are different from Huntington's patients, very different. And these drugs are uh, quite safe to use under those circumstances. You know what, I'm getting tired of speaking, so here. Okay, uh, looking at the cost, if you ever look at the prices and you look at the uh, average wholesale price, which I don't know even why we use that term anymore because it's a construct of no value, they're expensive. You try to buy these drugs, they are not cheap. Uh, that can be a severe threat to adherence. But as far as I know, almost all insurance, uh, commercial insurance cover these. Um, as far as I know, almost all Medicaid plans cover them. Do you know if it's all? Well, there's probably some states that... Anybody know if it's not covered in your state? Country, world, whatever. Okay, so it's pretty well covered by those, but I don't know if you've noticed, but our schizophrenic patients in particular fall through this giant hole of they don't have anything. So that could lead to discontinuing the medication and then a downward spiral of of uh, problems in the patient leading to being readmitted or, or losing some of their ability to function. So you need to get some good documentation of how well they are functioning and justify it to the insurance companies if you get any pushback. But these companies have extensive patient assistance programs to provide the drug as a last resort when there's no other coverage. So do not give up. Um, you'll need to document the uh, need and document the location, severity, uh, that the patient has been diagnosed with TD. There's a big hole. People will get treatment, they will never get a diagnosis. I've done a bunch of studies. People are treated for things all the time. 
about 50% of the time, there's no diagnosis of hyperlipidemia or diabetes or heart hypertension, but they're treated. So make sure you give the diagnosis because that will kick it back for sure. Um, you need to document what the biopsychosocial impairment is from the TD because that's where the rubber meets the road in the world, where function is lost. And you need to document why you didn't do something stupid like give him benzotropine, uh, why clonazepam poison. Poison. Why clonazepam uh, doesn't work. Uh, clozapine may be inappropriate for the patient. All of these things need to be documented when you're making your case to guarantee your patient has a good outcome that you're looking for. Get these all documented, and then the chance of your rejection by an insurance carrier is very low. You can take that insurance rejection to the company and their patient assistance program will cover you. Here are the um, uh, links to that. In case you didn't know how I got these, I just Googled them. That's not true. I actually used DuckDuckGo because DuckDuckGo doesn't track me, but same thing. If you don't know about DuckDuckGo, go check it out. Uh, Follow-up. Would you like to do follow-up? Well, I'll, I'll do follow-up uh, quickly. You know, I, I'm looking, we only have about an hour and a half left, so we're going to have to, like, speed it up a bit. How do we follow up? We check our work. How can we check our work? Well, we first have to make sure that we did things right the first time around. If you're going to have a patient on a VMAT2 inhibitor, you're going to need your baseline assessment, and you're going to want to follow that patient over time using that same instrument. The AIMS is incredibly helpful here because it's, it's comprehensive, it's well known, everyone can understand it, and it was the primary outcome measure in the research, so you can actually see where your patient would fit and whether it's uh, meeting your expectations. And if you do the, a good job of the AIMS exam assessment, it's pretty objective. It is, and the AIMS also allows you to document functional impairments and patient distress. So it is comprehensive in that regard. It's not just about the movements, it's also about uh, what happens because of these movements. And it could be impairments in functioning, it could be quite a bit of distress. The long-term data is very reassuring, so long-term studies have been done. They're not controlled, uh, but they do tell us uh, long-term of the continuing benefit in reduction of dyskinesias. Studies were done with duotetrabenazine and valbenazine, and we have data here for out to two years with duotetrabenazine showing patients who continue to have decreases in their dyskinesias. Uh, and uh, pretty much at the very similar dose that they're getting over the course of time. The mean daily dose to do a tetrabenazine at week 80 was about 40 milligrams. No new safety signs or concerns or signals were, were evident. Uh, and even in patients who were initially given placebo in the clinical trials, when they went to the extension, they caught up with their fellow patients who were receiving the drug all along. Similar with valbenazine, uh, where we have continuing improvement over time. And I want to point out something. I'm going to have to use the pointer. I hate doing that one, two screens. You'll see this see jump two. upwards. What happened? Oh, there's only one screen. There's two screens in front of me, and that got me confused. All right. So if you point at those, they won't really be able to tell. Oh, okay. Thanks for the uh, tip, I guess. Okay, so here we go. Between weeks 48 and 52, a complete return of their TD. Well, what happened? Valbenazine was discontinued. So these drugs will work only as long as patients continue to take them. They are not a cure for TD as far as we can tell. Just like everything except antibiotics, 
the drugs we use don't cure anything. But the good news is in long-term studies with both VMAT2 inhibitors, no new or unexpected side effects. Reassurance, however, I uh, trust but verify and I'll continue my follow-up and watching for any adverse events. So assume that TD exists in your practice. That's, that's the main message that we wanna give you today. Uh, it is still common and will continue to be so because of increasing use of antipsychotic medication. And basically that's the rationale why we spent over half of the time just talking about TD before we talked about the intervention. We also talked about harm reduction, prevent if possible by minimizing drug-induced Parkinsonism symptoms by selecting agents with a lower risk for this problem and minimize the use of poison when addressing drug-induced Parkinsonism. Did I just say poison? Yes, you I did. I meant benztropine. It's a synonym. Yeah. We want to screen with scheduled AIMS examinations, especially in those at high risk we want to do more often, and then treat. And we spend quite a bit of time talking about our current treatment options, focusing on the FDA-approved agents, do a tetrabenazine and valbenazine. Both are efficacious and tolerable. They differ in some amenities of care, as I like to call it. How often do you give it, once a day or twice a day, titrate or not titrate uh, as a requirement. Need for food, oh yes, I didn't mention. Do a tetrabenazine oh, yes. with food. When you look at the PK study, though, you are gonna walk away unimpressed with this requirement. It seemed to not change the area under the curve. It lowered the Cmax. But that's probably a good thing. But the fact that the AUC was the same means it, it just blunted the CMAX. Yeah. So. And, you know, the tetrabenazine is one of those things that tetrabenazine, because of its high CMAX, is probably not well tolerated. So anything we can do to lower the CMAX, intuitively that would make me think, well, we're probably going to improve tolerability. And uh, this is the case for doing tetrabenazine where the CMAX is generally lower. And uh, without food, it's, uh, or with food, Oh, now I'm all confused. It's supposed to be given with food, but it really doesn't matter is my take on the data. Drug-drug interaction. There was a problem from the peak when you don't give it with food, yeah. giving it with food would blunt the peak. Yeah. But the product label says to give it with food. It's a 20% change in the CMAX, which is the FDA's threshold for a label. Yeah. Your, your patients will vary. Yeah, and your patients will do what they please when taking it with food or not. Drug-drug interactions, we'll need to consider 2D6 modulators for both, and also think about 3A4 modulators for valbenazine. Contraindications, hepatic impairment is the one of note for duotetrabenazine. However, the usefulness of it, both of these options is moot unless you recognize the TD. So at this point, we have some time for questions, and we have a some written out. Great. If any of you have any more questions, your time is running out to turn them in. Okay, I get the stack here. Um, any deaths or dangerous adverse events you know of from withdrawal TD? Uh, no, just movement disorders that if you stop the antipsychotic, your movements will worsen but more likely your behavior will worsen as well, which is much more dangerous. Well, I've seen situations where the TD was particularly dangerous with diaphragmatic involvement. Yes, sorry. Esophageal inv involvement as well, where we resorted to masking the TD, this was some time ago, with additional uh, doses of haloperidol. 
but it was a more of a life-saving type of intervention than anything else while we figured out what to do next. Um, why don't you take the next question? I'll hit this one a second. Tetrabenazine's place compared to valbenazine and do tetrabenazine keeping costs in mind. So actually tetrabenazine is, uh, is a moving target in terms of pricing. Uh, initially when the approved FDA-approved uh, FDA VMAT2 inhibitors became available for TD, the price of tetrabenazine was still high, in fact higher, and depends if you look at the generic versus uh, branded. Now it's, there's some generics that are lower in price. However, they are more difficult to use, they're not as well tolerated. So I would push back on that and uh, really want to have for my patients something that's FDA approved that I have data to support that are, uh, that are established in terms of tolerability as well as efficacy. As you saw, the studies for valbenazine and duotetrabenazine were much larger in size than the studies for tetrabenazine. Just a point about uh, the tetrabenazine, by the way, remember the A is in there. The tetrabenazine um, use for uh, tardive dyskinesia was off-label, but some of our movement disorder uh, neurologists at the Health Science Center, to be able to get to a high enough dose to be effective, to get it to be tolerable, were giving four and five doses per day. So there was a giant burden to be able to take the medication. So the same uh, person who asked that question was talking also about wallet toxicity. Hmm. I never thought of it that way. But keep in mind, no patient will actually pay for VMAT2 inhibitors. The way their cost is structured, it is not affordable, period, if you paid out of pocket at the list price or even at a discounted price. So the companies are building relationships with health plans to make them available to the participants in the health plans. Medicaid managed care is also quite involved in figuring out which product to endorse and to make first line and so on. So they are working at it to make this accessible. Worst comes to worse, uh, the companies will make this available for free to patients who have no other resources. And keep in mind, for those who are commercially insured, there are mechanisms to make the copay zero dollars. So this is accessible, but if uh, any patient were to want to go out and purchase this at a, you know, let's say they could, but they, they really can't, uh, they wouldn't be able to afford it. It's too expensive. Uh, no one could afford this out of their pocket. But none of our patients that are in our outpatient clinics have a copay. It's just free. Okay? So the toxicity is real, but it's not a, bur a burden borne by the patient. That was a bad sentence. Okay, um, next one. I heard ECT was a risk factor for TD. Is this true and why? And my answer is, I have no idea. Um, I don't know. Okay, so you've stumped us, you get a prize. I have no idea what it would be. Okay, you're up. Is there a recommended duration of treatment with VMAT2 inhibitors or is treatment lifelong? It is indefinite. So, as far as we know, yeah. pending a new discovery, next week. It's the same answer for everything when you, somebody asks you, do I need to take this for the rest of my life? I have no idea, probably. We, Any thought as to why there is no worsening of mood disorder symptoms or suicidality with the new VBAT2 inhibitors versus tetrabenazine? They were studied in different populations. They were uh, dosed differently 
the peak trough ratio on tetrabenazine under any circumstances is substantial. And I suspect that the real difference is more with the fact that tetrabenazine was used in people with Huntington's chorea. And if you have Huntington's disease, you know that the light at the end of the tunnel is not the end of the tunnel, it's an oncoming train. Uh, here's a question that I'm going to uh, rephrase. What about the metabolites that do a tetrabenazine? Uh, you know, what's going on with that? Because they're deuterated too, yes. So tetrabenazine is metabolized to four metabolites, and that's where we think the action is, particularly plus alpha and minus alpha, and uh, not a whole lot with uh, minus beta and plus beta. Now the uh, deuterated equivalents of that uh, are there, and fortunately, the proportions of these different metabolites uh, are not equal. And there's actually more of the good kind than the bad kind. And with uh, duotetrabenazine, the good metabolite that's predominant is, if, um, if I remember correctly, minus alpha. And for valbenazine, it's the plus alpha. Then uh, that's the only metabolite that's present for valbenazine. The, the plus alpha version of the metabolite on valbenazine is 50 times more selective for the VMAT2 uh, transporter than the parent molecule is. Yeah, that's why I call it a prodrug, essentially. Yeah, it, this, is, this is one of the most rifle bullet drugs we've got. It's the magic bullet. It only goes and hits the target. There's virtually nothing else it binds to. Uh, any thought as, uh, no. Have you come across any other EPS developing due to decreased dopamine? Akathisia? I don't know. Not sure where to go with that. Okay. Uh, let's see, I'm selecting questions I want to answer. It's not affordable at the state hospital I work at because we take federal funds and don't get 34 340B. 340 340B. Yeah, thank you. 340B pricing and cannot bill patients. Does company have low cost option for us? Uh, ask. So it is entirely possible that they may make a deal of some kind. Depending on the system you're in, you may have to jump through more or less hoops, but there is light at the end of the tunnel and it is not the oncoming train for you. So you go ask and you will be able to do something for your patients. If the companies have to, they'll give it to you. We had a tetrabenazine patient with Huntington's and he developed severe OCD. Any notice so far in TD patients? So I don't know, I'm, uh, this would be an interesting question for the medical affairs department for either company uh, with regard to unusual adverse events that have occurred. And it could be that through the pharmacovigilance system that we can get uh, some additional information, but there was nothing that popped out in the clinical trials that would rise to uh, any worry. And no pharmacovigilance committee has reported anything about that that I know of yet, but the pharmacovigilance systems only detect something when it rises 20-fold higher incidence at that point in, in, since its release for a drug of some adverse effect. But they may have some cases that they can share with you. So that's right. the other thing too. If you're really curious about a medicine and want to know about something obscure about it, 
you write, you uh, put a medical information request to the company, and they'll get back to you with what's called a medical letter if you haven't done this before. And they're, they're pretty good about this, and they'll give you uh, sometimes more information than you wanted to see. I, I would also suggest that you not mention that you have a patient with oh, that yeah. problem, yeah. or all you're going to get back is a letter, thank you for your question, here's a product label. If you ask a generic question, they'll give you whatever they can dump. You know, what's even worse is they'll send you a product label and a form to fill out requesting information about this adverse event. Yes. For your MedWatch uh, contribution to Jure. If QTC increases on treatment and patient has responded really well, what do you recommend? Get a new heart? So, and there's QTC prolonged? So one of the things is, uh, did they, are they, they must be on something else as well, because otherwise you wouldn't have looked. And can you change that something else that they're on because you're getting a benefit from a VMAT2 inhibitor that can't be duplicated elsewhere. So I would think I would strategize in that direction. I wouldn't feel comfortable if someone had a QTC uh, of 500 or more and you know just wait around. Although uh, some cardiologists would be you know just fine with that with continued monitoring. But it does increase the risk of arrhythmia. So I'd be concerned there. There's a way to decrease the risk safely with that patient by altering the other medicine. I would certainly think about doing and, that. And also, keep in mind that QTC prolongation is due to one of three channels getting blocked. So most of the drugs uh, cause a block at the HERG channel, but there's two others. If the drugs actually hit a different channel, you're going to clobber the person. If they're all hitting the same channel, you're all stacking up, and the most you can do is turning off something once. So you can't stack up drugs at the same channel and cause more of a problem. But trying to get rid of that other drug would be a good place to start. And also do genetic studies and find out if they have long QT syndrome. Uh, here's a question that uh, uh, I'm going to also reinterpret so that I would be happier answering. But it, I'll, I will address it. Uh, you may have noticed that dopamine depletion or reduction of dopamine signaling might mean that this may help with hallucinations and delusions. And what's the difference between decreasing dopamine output uh, from blocking dopamine receptors? And wouldn't this help with psychosis and, and all of that? Well, it turns out, and I don't know why, VMAT2 inhibitors go to the dorsal striatum. They don't go to the ventral striatum. I don't know why. So that may explain why drugs like tetrabenazine, duotetrabenazine, valbenazine, don't seem to really do much in terms of psychotic symptoms, but only affect motor movements. But then you're probably thinking, well, what about reserpine? Didn't you just say you used reserpine for schizophrenia? Well, reserpine is a different VMAT inhibitor. It's VMAT1 and VMAT2. And irreversible. And irreversible, and that's a true dopamine depleter. Uh, these are kind of the, uh, the um, uh, uh, a weak, uh, depleter, and in, in, I wouldn't even call it depleter, I would say reducer of dopamine signaling. It's the Diet Coke of, of dopamine depletion, to quote Austin Powers. Yes. Uh, or Dr. Evil. A anyhow, uh, so reserpine works differently, it's irreversible, it also works at a different site for VMAT inhibition. There are some investigator-initiated trials on the VMAT2 inhibitors running, 
for antipsychotic activity. So despite our theories of how the drugs work, occasionally you get a surprise. So yeah. stay tuned. Um, a smart bet would not be on that. So we're, what time do we have to end? Well, if you're willing to stay here till the, uh -oh. hello, five minutes? Okay, good, excellent. Okay, I answered that one. I answered that one. Don't want to answer I'm that out. one. You want got any more? Yeah, no? I answered that one. I answered that one. Uh, I'm I'm done. Okay. Any any last question from the audience? Or we're gonna call it a day. <laughs>